Chapter Sixteen of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Sixteen in the City. Through several days I remained in bed, my limbs rigid, my senses bewildered. Although we said nothing to Tweedy, Clue entirely shared my suspicion that if an attempt had actually been made upon my life, it had been made at Riverdean. The doctor ran in several times a day, and Dick, assisted by old Mrs. Joad, was as attentive to my wants as any trained nurse, snatching all the time he could spare from his duties to sit by me and gossip of men and things in Fleet Street and the latest scoop of the comet. Tweedy was puzzled. Each time he saw me he remarked upon my curious symptoms, carefully noting them and expressing wonder as to the exact nature of the deleterious substance. He pronounced the opinion that it was some alkaloid, for such it was shown by the regions that he had used in his analysis, but of what nature he was utterly at a loss to determine. Many were the questions he put to me as to what I had eaten on that day, and I explained how I had lunched at one of the restaurants in Fleet Street, and afterwards dined with friends at Laleham. "'You ate no sandwiches or anything of that kind at station refreshment bars?' he asked when visiting me one morning in the vague idea I supposed that the poison might, after all, be a ptomaine. None, I answered. With the exception of what I have told you, I had a glass of wine at the house of a friend at Hampton before rowing up to Laleham. A glass of wine, he repeated slowly, as if reflecting. You noticed no peculiar taste in it? What was it, port? Yes, I replied. An excellent wine it was, without any taste unusual. For the first time the recollection of that glass of wine given me by Eva at the Hollies came back to me. Surely she could not have deliberately given me a fatal draught. Often, he said, a substance which is poison to one person is harmless to another. If we could only discover what it really was which affected you, we might treat you for it and cure you much more rapidly. As matters rest, however, you must grow strong again by degrees and thank Providence that you're still alive. I confess when I first saw you I thought you'd only a few minutes to live. Was I so very bad? As ill as you could be. You were cold and rigid, and looked as though you were already dead. In fact, any one but a doctor would, I believe, have pronounced life extinct. Your breath on a mirror alone showed respiration, although the heart's movement was so weak as to be practically imperceptible. But don't trouble further over it you'll be about soon. And shortly afterwards he shook my hand and went on his way to the hospital, already late on my account. I longed to tell him all the curious events of the past, but saw that such a course might be unwise. If I did so, Eva, the woman I adored, must be prematurely judged, first because of old Lowry's revelations, and now secondly because of the suspicious fact of my illness after partaking of the wine she offered. The idea that the attempt had been made upon me at Riverdean seemed very improbable, because I had dined in common with the other guests. The tea I had taken was poured from the same Queen Anne pot from which the cups of others were filled, and in the whiskey and soda I had had before leaving I was joined by three other men who had rowed up from a houseboat about a quarter of a mile lower down. As I lay there restless in my bed, trying vainly to read, I spent hours in recalling every event of that day, but could discover no suspicious circumstance other than that incident of the wine at the Hollies. 
I recollected how Eva, after ringing for the servant and ordering it, had herself gone out into the dining-room and had been absent a couple of minutes or so. Possibly she might only have gone there in order to unlock the cellarette, yet there were likewise, of course, other graver possibilities. This thought which fastened upon my mind so tenaciously allowed me but little rest. I tried to rid myself of it, tried to scorn such an idea, tried to reason with myself how plain it was that she actually held me in some esteem, and if so she would certainly not seek to take my life in that cowardly, dastardly manner. Sometimes I felt that I misjudged her. At others grave suspicions haunted me. Yet with all my love for her never once wavered. She was my idol. Through those long, weary hours of prostration and convalescence I thought always of her, always. I had written her a short note, saying that I was unwell and unable to go down to Riverdean, not, however, mentioning the cause of my illness, and in response there came in return a charmingly worded little letter expressing profound regret and hoping we should meet again very soon. A hundred times I read that note. Was the thin, delicate hand that penned it the same that had endeavored to take my life? That was the sole question uppermost in my mind a problem which racked my brain day by day, nay, hour by hour. But there was no solution. Thus was I compelled to exist in torturing suspicion, anxiety, and uncertainty. One hot afternoon I had risen for the first time, and was sitting among pillows in the armchair reading some magazines which Dick had thoughtfully brought me during the luncheon hour, when a timid knock sounded at the door. The hag had left me to attend upon some other young gentleman in the temple, and I was alone. Therefore I rose and answered the summons, finding to my surprise that my visitor was Lily Lowry. At once, at my invitation, she entered a slim figure dressed in neat, if cheap, black, without any attempt at being fashionable, but with that primness and severity expected of ladies' maids and shop assistants. Her gloves were neat, her hat suited her well and beneath her veil I saw a pretty face, pale, interesting, and anxious-looking. "'I didn't expect to find anyone in, except Mrs. Joad,' she said apologetically, as she took the chair I offered. Then, noticing my pillows, and perhaps the paleness of my countenance, she asked, "'What? You are surely not ill, Mr. Irwin?' "'Yes,' I answered. "'I have been rather queer for a week past. The heat or something of that sort, I suppose. Nothing at all serious.' "'I'm so glad of that,' she said. I only called because I was passing. I've been matching some silk at the wholesale houses in the city, and as I wanted to give Mr. Clue a message I thought I'd leave it with Mrs. Joad. A message, I repeated. Can I give it? She hesitated, and I saw that a slight blush suffused her cheeks. No, she faltered, you're very kind, but perhaps, after all, it would be better to write to him. As you like, I said, smiling. You don't, of course, care to trust your secrets in my keeping, eh? She looked at me seriously for a moment, her lips quivered, and she drew a long breath. "'You've always been extremely kind,' she said in a low voice, half-choked with emotion. "'And now that I find you alone, I feel impelled to confide in you and seek your advice.' "'I'm quite ready to offer any advice I can,' I answered, quickly interested. "'If I can render you any assistance, I will certainly do so with pleasure.' "'Ah!' she exclaimed, sighing again. "'I knew you would. I am in trouble, 
in such terrible trouble what has happened i inquired quickly for i saw how white and wan she was and of course attributed it to dick's action in renouncing his pledge you of course know that mr clue and i have parted she said looking up at me quickly he has told me so i responded gravely i regret very much to hear it what is the reason has he not told you she asked her eyes filled with tears no i answered he gave no reason well she explained he has judged me wrongly i am entirely innocent i assure you in a place of business like ours we are compelled to be on friendly terms with the male assistants and the other evening as i was leaving the shop to go to the house where we girls live at the other end of rye lane one of the men an insufferable young fellow in the hosiery department chanced to be going the same way and walked with me on the way dick mr clue i mean passed us and now he declares that i've been in the habit of flirting with these men it is not pleasant for any girl to walk alone along rye lane at ten o'clock at night therefore this young fellow was only escorting me out of politeness yet i cannot make dick believe otherwise than that he is my lover he's jealous of you i said is not jealousy an index of true love but if he loved me truly she protested bursting into tears he surely would not treat me so cruelly as this i've done nothing to warrant this denunciation as a worthless flirt indeed i haven't and you love him i asked with deep sympathy for i saw how intense was her suffering he knows that i do she answered he could see but little of me because his work prevented him yet i was supremely happy in the knowledge of his love yet now he has forsaken me she added sobbing i'm but a poor girl and i suppose if the truth were known he admires someone else better educated and more attractive than i am no i think not i said although at heart i felt that she spoke the truth this is merely a lover's quarrel and you'll quickly make it up again look at the brighter side of things come but she shook her head gloomily saying never i feel confident that dick will never come back to me although i shall love him always and she raised her veil to wipe the hot tears from her cheeks no no i exclaimed endeavoring to comfort her don't meet trouble halfway that's one of the secrets of happiness we all of us have our little spasms of grief and despair sometimes you know ah yes of course she cried quickly but this sorrow has alas not come alone still another misfortune has fallen upon me what's that i inquired surprised my father she exclaimed huskily and what of him i asked i called upon him a short time ago surely nothing has happened to him well she replied it occurred like this i got permission this day week to leave business at five o'clock and as usual went home when however i arrived at the shop i found it shut and to my amazement a bailiff was in possession for debt i inquired yes he showed me some papers and said it would cost about four hundred pounds to settle both bill and cost of the court and your father what was his explanation i asked greatly interested and surprised he wasn't there she responded that's the curious part about the whole affair i made inquiries and discovered that he had suddenly shut up the shop about noon three days before and had got off with a heavy trunk placed on a four-wheeled cab does no one know where he's gone nobody she answered excitedly it's so strange that he has not written me a single line in explanation i can't understand it i paused for a few moments deeply puzzled from the fact that the bailiff was in possession it would appear that he had preferred flight to facing his creditors i said slowly 
were you aware that he was in debt not in the least she answered he has some property abroad you know where in france i think he never spoke of it to anyone although i knew that the rent was remitted regularly by a draft on the credit lyonnais in palmau i used to go there with him to receive the money it was quite a pile of banknotes each quarter then he could not really have been so badly off as he appeared i observed no he was eccentric and very miserly and although he always had enough and to spare he used constantly to deplore our poverty i took a situation merely to satisfy him as he had so often expressed regret that i should be idling at home there was however absolutely no real necessity but surely i said he has not intentionally left you alone in the world he will write very soon perhaps just now he does not write for fear his whereabouts should become known he's evidently escaped his creditors has he been speculating do you think not that i am aware of can't you think of any reason why he should have fled so precipitately i asked at the same time reflecting that it might be due to the fact that he had aroused the suspicions of the police by the illegal sale of drugs no she answered none whatever beyond what i've already explained his flight is an entire mystery and it was to seek the advice of dick as my closest friend that i called here how had i best act do you think i really don't know i replied after some reflection his disappearance is certainly remarkable but if he is in hiding it is not at all strange that he should omit to write to you he knows your address therefore when he deems it safe in his own interest to communicate with you and explain he will do so no doubt then i'm to wait in patience and see our home sold up she asked tears again welling in her dark luminous eyes you can do nothing else i said he evidently means that it should be sold for he has made no attempt to rescue it there are so many of my poor mother's things there i should so like to keep them her little trinkets and such trifles it seems very hard that they should be sold to a second-hand dealer that's so but you have no means of rescuing them i pointed out it is certainly very hard indeed for you to be left alone and friendless like this but without doubt your father has some reason in acting thus he's fled like some common thief she cried with a choking sob and now i haven't a single friend i am your friend i said echoing her sigh you have my sympathy lily and if i can render you any service i shall always be ready to do so she thanked me warmly in the voice choked by sobs for the two great sorrows had fallen upon her and she was overwhelmed and broken i promised i would speak to dick and if possible arrange a meeting between them in order to try and effect a reconciliation inwardly however i knew that this was quite impossible for he had really grown tired of her and had more than once in the past few days openly congratulated himself upon his freedom she remained a short time longer and before she left had become more composed and was in better spirits then when she shook my hand to go forth she said i thank you so much for all your kind words mr irwin i have at least to-day found a real friend i hope so i laughed good-bye good-bye i hope you'll soon be about again then the door closed and i was again alone i was heartily sorry for her poor girl the sudden flight of the old herbalist was to say the least suspicious that he had money and could pay the debt was certain without doubt he had disappeared on account of a too close attention from the police morris lowry was i knew not very remarkable for paternal affection 
therefore I feared that he had, as Lily suspected, left her at the mercy of the world. A week later I was able to go down to my office again, and about six o'clock on the second day I had resumed my duties I accidentally met Boyd at the bottom of Fleet Street. As merry as usual we drank together at the bodega beneath the railway arch in Ludgate Hill, but in reply to my eager questions he told me that absolutely nothing fresh had transpired regarding the curious affair at Kensington. I explained that I was still a frequent visitor at Riverdene, but up to the present had discovered nothing. I, of course, did not tell him all my suspicions, preferring to keep my own counsel and allow him to prosecute his inquiries after his own methods. From his conversation, however, I saw that he had many other matters in hand, and from his attitude it seemed as though he had given up hope of obtaining a clue to the mystery. On finishing our wine we rose from the barrel on which we had been sitting, and he, having announced his intention to walk along to the bookstall in Ludgate Hill Station to buy a magazine for his wife, for he was just off home by motor-bus to Hammersmith, we strolled together through that short arcade leading to the station, at that hour crowded by hungry city men eager to get back to their suburban homes. Into every door they surged, springing up the two staircases to the platform above, as though they had not a further moment to live, while every few seconds the deep voices of the ticket collectors cried the names of the stations from the city to Blackheath or Victoria, or from Hearn Hill down to Dover. Amid this black-coated, silk-hatted, perspiring crowd, a man suddenly brushed past me, rushing up the stairs two steps at a time, slipping through the barrier just as the door was slammed, and disappearing onto the platform. "'Hello!' cried Boyd, pressing my arm quickly. "'See! Look at that man! The one with the bag running up the steps! Do you see him?' "'Yes,' I answered, myself confounded. "'Well, that's the fellow I saw in St. James's Park, and who got away so neatly from Ebury Street. You remember?' "'That man?' I gasped, utterly amazed. "'Yes, we mustn't lose sight of him this time. He can tell us something if he likes.' And without further word he dashed away after the man who had hurried to catch his train, leaving me standing alone in amazement. That man who had brushed past I had instantly recognized as none other than Henry Blaine, who was supposed to have been in Paris. This fresh development was certainly both startling and mysterious. End of chapter 16 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com